Hey guys, welcome back to Mountain Murders. Hey, how you doing? Hey, how's it going? Did you have a good week? Uh, yes. You were with us some of the week. Right. <laughs> you were available for our William McCline Jr. episode. We discussed The Butcher. Yes. But you missed out on the Patreon episode. Yeah, I know. And uh, But I listened to it and I enjoyed it. Well, if you're not following us on Patreon and um, a patron, you should be because we offer up lots of bonus content, stuff that is not available to the public, uh, just for our subscribers and uh, collaborators and contributors and whatnot on Patreon. Um, it's just a couple of bucks a month. It's billed monthly. So for three bucks a month, you get lots of extra content. And a you're lot. helping us. You're supporting the podcast. Yep. Helping us and uh, helping us keep it going. And um, we try to, we're adding content all the time and um, trying to get more and more on there. And we discussed today doing some full-blown episodes. Yeah, we strayed a little bit this week from the true crime genre and talked about some local legends and some superstitions and things here in our region. Um, so, yeah, we try to spice it up a little bit over there. We had an overwhelming number of folks who voted on our Facebook poll about what they would like to hear next on a bonus episode. And apparently uh, people want to hear about local ghost stories, regional yeah, ghost stories. I really do. Yeah. So we're definitely going to get something together for that because we know all of our patrons are uh, are just ready, ready for more content. Yeah. So this case is uh, fairly interesting and also really kind of scary. Yeah. Um, of it's course, my nightmare. Yeah. So, of course, we live in the Appalachian Mountains. The Appalachian Trail runs just a few miles from our house. And lots of folks out there enjoy hiking on the trail. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big economic driver in our area. It is. So, yeah, any towns that come close to the trail where people can pop off and rest, resupply, yeah. Now, Dylan, have you ever been, like, a backpacker? Um, no, though my last name is Packer. Um, and I might add that you are exceptional at packing things. I can. I have an eye for it. He does. It's like Tetris, but with, like, luggage and things. My ancestors packed things. Did they? Yeah. I believe it. I'm going to start letting you pack my well, four like the, suitcases for a week right. trip. Because yeah. it's like the shoemakers or, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I think my people packed containers and things. and Mules and things. Had a, Yeah, had an eye for space and weight <laughs> distribution. That's our talent. So back in the like medieval times, the packers were like... Yeah, the house you know, of packer. They were packing up um, like one of those pods for people. Yes. Yeah. And the med- medieval version of the pods. And they were like, sir, does this armor spark joy? And and the wife's like, no, it doesn't. And so they ship it off to, to the packers to pack away in a pod yes, somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the ha- ha- house packer. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Uh, anyway, yeah. 
But um, are we off on a tangent? Oh yeah, we are on tangent, guys. Are you still there? Sorry, yeah. we're here. <laughs> but anyway, yes, this is that's what we do sometimes. So you never been much of a backpacker, is what you're saying? No, but you like camping. I'll go catch a trail. You, you like know, hiking? Fairly primitive, real primitive camping. And I don't. I think it gets ridiculous when you got you know the everything that you have at home. That's not really camping, you know. But oh, you mean like glamping? Glamping, yeah. Yeah, we have a good friend, and you like to make fun of him a little bit for being a glamper. Yeah, he brings everything, and like like if he's not staying in like a sixty thousand dollar RV or something, he's just like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, yeah, roughing it is having just bathroom and showers and maybe an arcade, maybe a swimming pool. Is roughing it? Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and but sleeping in like a camper or a cabin or something, right? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the upgrade. Now he's in the cabins. Yeah, yeah. But you like camping, tent camping, that kind of thing. Yeah, but I'm I'm not going to go do the trail or go backpack. Or I haven't before. Maybe I would enjoy backpacking into somewhere and staying a few days. But um, no, I've never done that. Have you ever? Yeah, I've actually hike some sections of the Appalachian Trail and I've gone backpacking and you do, you know, eight, ten miles a day, that kind of thing. So yeah, it's fun. It's very liberating. It's scary at times. Right. You know, especially, I mean, when I've gone backpacking, it's usually been with like a girlfriend. So you, you know, two women in the woods on a trail, um, you know, you might go all day and not see anyone on the trail, but you may bump into three or four people. Sometimes you find sketchy dudes on the trail and well see that's the uh, some people be might, a little frightening might, some people might hear trail and think oh you know it's a trail like the, they're thinking of the ones where you pull up to the parking lot and you go down this trail for a mile and back around and this is way in the middle of nowhere oh right? yeah some of the section because i've hiked some of the sections locally here in north carolina and down in georgia because it does start springer mountain georgia right um are pretty rugged. I mean, when you get up towards like Franklin, North Carolina, some of those areas, Siler Bald and places like that can be pretty, pretty rugged. It's a really narrow trails, really high elevations. You're on trails that you're like, dude, if I just stepped off this, I'd go rolling down an embankment on the side of a mountain. So this is not the place to get into trouble or run up on a bad person. Yeah. Because you're miles and miles and miles away from hell. And so our story today, we are going to focus a bit on um, some of the Appalachian Trail murders. There's been quite a few. Are you ready? Yeah. To get started with this? So I'm going to have to switch glasses because my other pair is so dirty. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to get started and, and we'll talk about this first case. We actually have two cases to talk about. We'll start with this first case because it's kind of older. So we'll just go in a, in a numeral, you know, sequence or whatever. Randall Lee Smith. So he was born in Virginia in 1954. And when he was about six months old, his parents divorced. Um, he would live with his mother and pretty much would live with her for the rest of his life, you know, until she passed away. Now, his mom's name was Loretta, and she was a nurse's aide. They kind of lived in multiple houses, but in the same community, which is Ingram, Virginia, which is a really fairly small town, not even really considered like a a town. 
It's more like a community. Yeah, it really is. Right. So, but they kind of always lived in and around that community, never moving outside of it. Um, they finally settled down into a four-bedroom, one-bath home that Randall would occupy for the rest of his life. Um, so he'd always live in his childhood home. Now, it is reported that in his younger years, his mother forced him to wear girls' clothes. But there really has never been a good explanation as to why she did this. Like all the time? No, it just seemed sometimes she would... Enough that people thought noticed. They dress him up like a girl. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was like an everyday occurrence, but it was, as you mentioned, enough, I think, that people kind of took notice. And, you know, there was really no reason for it, so people don't know if maybe she just really wanted a girl, wanted right. a daughter, or it was some weird, like, sleepaway camp kind of bullshit. Uh-oh. Or if um, maybe it was like some kind of punishment. Or, yeah, it would be like, I'm going to take these pictures and show all your friends, and they're going to laugh at your little pee-pee. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Well, as a child, Randall was described as a loner. He pretty much kept to himself, rarely interacted or even really played with other kids. So being a loner, spending so much time in isolation and solitude, he developed a hobby of collecting arrowheads and would end up spending a great deal of time outdoors, which worked out pretty well for him because the home he shared with his mother was just right off the Appalachian Trail. Right, in the woods. Yeah, so they lived, you know, way out. Well, when he was in school, he was not a standout student. Um, he didn't make good grades. He didn't participate in any kind of extracurricular activities. Again, he didn't have a lot of friends, kept to himself. So by 11th grade, he had dropped out of high school, and he moved to Newport News, Virginia, to work as a shipyard welder, which is a pretty good job. Yeah, I was going to say, I was probably... That's a pretty good job, making good money back then. Yeah, definitely. Probably a government contractor. Yeah, and plenty of work. Probably uh, good benefits and that sort of thing. And it was during this time that he started telling his coworkers these really, like, outrageous stories. And they knew right off the bat, like, these stories are a fabrication. Yeah, don't you love people like that? Like they just, tell these such grand tales and... Yeah. You're just like, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And usually with people like this, you kind of know within the first, like, few minutes that they're full of shit. Yes. Uh, yes. There's a guy famously at work who tells the grandest tales. Yeah. I'll tell some of them some other time, but well, you wouldn't even believe those it. Well, I people, too. I call them toppers that, like, yeah. top your story. No, oh, God, I love to- I love. There's nothing you can do. They got to one-up you. In the oh, same, yeah. next sentence. So those people, for me, they kind of fall in the same category, the liars and the one-uppers, the toppers. Okay, yeah. So he would just tell these crazy stories about his marriage, his family. He lied so much that everybody started calling him Lying Randall. Huh, it's a great nickname. And coworkers said he would, like, disappear for, like, days at a time and then be like, oh, well, I had the kids this weekend. Which everybody knew was a lie. He wasn't married. He didn't have kids. See, that's... You know, people would ask him, like, hey, you want to... We're going to have a cookout, or you want to come over this weekend, and, oh, I'm taking the kids to Bush Gardens this weekend. I mean, and it was like, you know, people knew he was just full of shit. So by 1981, um, this was May, he had left the Newport News area, had returned back home, and, you know, I guess he was kind of just working some odd jobs and not really... Not really doing a whole lot with his life, spending a great deal of time outdoors. 
So he's still back in the childhood home, same little community. Way back in the home. He probably hasn't grown much. Right. As he's grown up. And on top of that, in this tiny community, he is a loner and withdraws even from that tiny community. Yeah, and you got to think he's living with his mom, which in itself is kind of, you know, a lot of people judge that. Probably spending a lot of time hanging out with her, hanging out um, on the trail. Um, everybody said he, you know, was obsessed with those arrowheads, but he had just, like, take off and be gone for several days yeah. in the woods. You know, Find no a good field somewhere it. and look for arrowheads. Just kind of a mountain man type. In May of 1981, there was a couple, a young couple, Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Ramsey. They were two social workers from Maine, and I guess they worked together, and they were also a couple. And they were hiking the Appalachian Trail together, and the hike was not just for pleasure. It was actually uh, to raise some money for the mentally ill. As I said, they were both social workers, so they had a passion for, you know, helping uh, others and and so they wanted to raise some money and they were going to donate it to like a group home. Yeah, that's that a like that's a great little. great great people right there. A great thing to do. That was cooler than anything I've ever done. Well, you know, here they are hiking, whatever. They're of course staying at shelters, signing into log books, that kind of thing. It I guess came out that you know they hadn't been heard from for like a while, a couple weeks. And you know, when you're out on the trail, you might bump into other hikers. You try to catch up with them, that kind of thing. So there are some ways to kind of keep tabs on where people are, what they're doing. And so I'm not exactly sure if that's how these two were reported missing, or maybe um, they had a certain time and they, they were, were going to be somewhere, check members. in. Yeah. They never did. People start to kind of raise an eyebrow. You know, these two kids are missing off the trail. And I say kids, they're young people. They're like in their 20s. There were some witnesses who testified later that they saw a man um, with Laura Ramsey um, at a shelter called the Wapiti Shelter. And they started describing him. And, you know, I guess the cops and, and investigators were kind of like, okay, that sounds like someone we know. And so they start to piece together that it could have been Randall Smith. And he spends a lot of time out on the trail. The uh, you know, cops go out, start to look around, and they see that there's some weird little things at this shelter. Just some things that are out of place. So, uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Have you seen one of these shelters in person before? Yeah. Are they just like cabins or... Some of them are kind of like... Some more primitive well, or some less? Some of them are like a cabin. I mean, <clears throat> some of them will have like walls and a roof and a floor. Um, usually a door that's kind of an open... You know, just open. You can walk in and out. Right. Um, others are more like what I would describe as like a how a picnic shelter would be built. Okay. Or like, like a, a lean roof. Roof. Yeah. Like right. a little roof, a couple of beams, you know, poles. Right. Folded up. Wooden right. floorboards, you know. Like some of the people I know who've, I've never camped in the shelters. I always just find a nice spot somewhere off the trail. Um, the thought of the shelters kind of wigged me out because I've had people tell me that when you camp in the shelters a lot of times that there's like mice. Well, and also you're kind of a target. Around. That's just your your instincts and the type of person you are. Like, you know, I don't know. This is an obvious place for someone to come looking or something like that. I'd rather be off by myself. Yeah, I kind of secluded. feel more safe and I want to be in a tent. Right. So that the creature's will leave me alone. I don't know. Like, it wigs me out when I'm in a tent and I can 
feel an animal come up in the middle of the night and like sniff my fingers through the tent or something. Oh, yeah. I'm like, ah, it's probably just a raccoon, but <laughs> you know, the thought of like a mouse crawling on me while I'm trying to sleep, hell no. Or a big spider. So. You know, the spider doesn't even freak me out as much as like a mouse does. Or a snake. Oh yeah, I don't even go there. So, uh, as we were talking about here, the cops uh, start poking around the shelter and they saw some things that were pretty odd there. Like for example, a stain on the floorboards. That's never good. Right? Officers discovered it was blood, and eventually it would test positive as uh, Robert Mountford Jr.'s blood. So the investigators searched this 30-yard radius around the shelter, and they found this one spot that looked kind of like the ground had been disturbed and covered with leaves. And so once they started digging, they were able to find a sleeping bag, and eventually they found the body of Laura Ramsey. Oh, my God. Yeah. So the bodies had been buried in a shallow, leaf-covered grave, and they were, in fact, buried in their sleeping bags. But once they find Laura, you know, they're, I guess, still trying to find Robert. And so they bring in cadaver dogs, go right to the body. They're able to find him as well. Well, they also found Laura Ramsey's camera near the scene, but the film had been taken out. And cops were hoping that there would still be film in the camera or, you know, and that perhaps it would, they'd have a picture of right. something. The or killer, the moment right before you. Yeah, anything. something. But no film in there. But they did find a book that belonged to Ramsey, which had a bloody fingerprint in the book. Well, they already have witnesses saying, I guess, that they had seen this guy who kind of looked like Randall Smith. Then they find this fingerprint, and lo and behold, who does it belong to? Randall Smith. Ding, ding, ding. We've got a winner. Yeah, you know, I'm sure this whole time they were thinking, oh, I bet this Randall, because I'm sure they thought of him as weird. You know, the the guy, the quiet guy that off in the woods all the time, probably socially awkward, I'm sure. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sure they think about him the whole time this was unfolding. Well, this had also been like the first double homicide on the Appalachian Trail. I guess, you know, there had been others reported. Um, I think the earliest actual report of a homicide on the trail was like 1974. Right. So this is just a few, you know, six years after that, seven years after that. And this is a double homicide. Double homicide. Well, Robert Mountford Jr. was shot three times, and then Laura Ramsey had been stabbed more than 12 times. And Randall Smith went even as far as returning to the shelter. Like, he had killed them, buried them. Went back to the shelter, tore out pages from the log books. Ah. Because, you know, at the shelter, a lot of times they'll have log books. They're, they're signed by hikers all along the trail. And it, has, it is as a safety precaution, but also just kind of for fun. People will write little notes in there, little notes of encouragement, like, hey, we made it. You guys can make it here. You know, that sort of thing. And then it's a good way for hikers to kind of check in with each other. Like maybe you've bumped into someone on the trail like a few days before they went into town, they came back. Oh, well, they're at this shelter today. Maybe I can catch up with them here tomorrow, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So he had gone back and torn those pages out. I mean, this guy just, yeah, he was, uh, he was something. Well, during the investigation, they found some blood-stained clothes soaking at Randall Smith's home. And then they found a lot of pornographic magazines in his house. 
Oh, that's a great combination. Yeah. So I guess they found the bloodstained clothes kind of in like a basement area. And that's where they found this huge stash of porno mags. And it wasn't just like he had left, you know, jugs laying out or something. He went as far as he would take the pages out very carefully, like from the magazine, and place them in plastic sleeves to preserve them. Oh, yeah, so he was quite a, a fan, a collector. Wow. Obviously, this is a guy who's got a lot of skill with the ladies. Yeah, because he's making where he can wipe them off. Well, they also found, among the bloody clothes and all the porno mags, some medical instruments, which had been fashioned into, like, sex toys. Okay. So this cannot, what else did they find? Because this cannot get any weirder well, or creepier. Well, they found a few more items that belonged to the victims. Oh, nice. Among the, the stash of goodies Okay, there. so we got, uh, you keep the blood-soaked clothes, and you soak them, probably with, you know, a little club soda and bacon soda or something in there. Yeah. And he's got the crazy porn thing that's like in book reports, like fifth grade book report, all preserved. And the items of the victims. Yeah. And it's bloody fingerprints in a book found on the scene. Right. So they're at his house. They find all this stuff. I mean, they're like, okay, this guy did it. They've got witnesses coming forward saying, hey, we saw, you know, these folks with this creepy dude, whatever. So they're like, okay, this is Smith. But they go to his house. They find all this weird shit, but they don't find him. Oh, So it was almost a week after the murders had taken place that Smith was found. He drove his pickup truck to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. He abandoned the pickup truck. He had written this very rambling note. It was left in the ashtray. It said, This boy and girl have been so nice to me. It is going to be a real shame when the time comes to get rid of them. I will be far away before the truck and those people are found. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So leaves the note, abandons the vehicle, but he's still captured and arrested in Myrtle Beach. And why of all places did he go to Myrtle Beach? I don't know. Dude. Everybody he, loves the Redneck Riviera. Who went to Myrtle Beach? Yeah. <laughs> wonder if he got like a cool airbrush t-shirt. Or at least a tag that could have like just me on it and just his name because he kills everybody. I hope he went to the gate often. That's oh. the best part of going to Myrtle Beach. Okay. It's the Gay Dolphin, the gift shop. Oh, okay, yeah. Where they have all this cheesy stuff for like a dollar. Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. So tacky, but it's awesome. Randall Smith arrested, charged. Eventually, he makes a plea deal. And I think plea agreements suck. It depends. I mean, like I said, if they are real worried about, you know, circumstantial evidence and not having a strong enough case. And they think that he likely might lose, you know, win a trial in front of a jury just because of doubt. You just got to have that little flicker of doubt. You know, that's how the defense attorneys count on, you know, just that one person that holds out or anything like that. So sometimes they make these pleas. Yeah. But it usually pisses me off, too. Yeah. Well, in these cases, definitely. Um, so he receives this plea deal. He gets a second degree murder charge. And was sentenced to 15 years in prison, which caused a lot of controversy. Wow. I mean, you shoot a guy, you stab this woman, you bury them out in the woods, you run away like a coward, 
go to Myrtle Beach, leave a weird fucking note. I mean, geez. Yeah, and even in the note, you're basically admitting you're hanging out with these people. Yeah. You know, gaining their trust. And then just going to turn on them like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just really strange. But it caused a lot of controversy, as you can imagine. Of course, the victims' families were very upset. And five years after the sentence began, the Virginia Parole Board considered letting him out early. Wow. Yeah. So family, friends, and a lot of Appalachian Trail supporters made calls, wrote letters, just protesting the possibility of releasing this guy. Damn, this guy's lucky, isn't he? Yeah. He gets this juicy plea, and they might get out in four or five years. Once he was released, they put him under, like, a probation for 10 years, which is a pretty long time to be on probation. And they also had him wear an ankle monitor for a pretty good bit of time as well, yeah. like a year or two after he was released. So we're going to fast forward to 2008. This 10-year stretch, basically, since he had gotten out of prison, returned home, He's living a really quiet life. He's staying out of trouble. He's, you know, doing the same kinds of things, just working some odd jobs, spending a lot of time outside on the trail, fishing, you know, hiking, that kind of thing. So where did he go after he got out of jail? He went back home to his childhood home. Right back to his childhood home out in the woods. What you know. Perfect for him. It was May of 2008 that Smith was reported missing. And I think... There were some neighbors that he had kind of been helping out, like clearing brush and doing, you know, doing that kind of stuff for them. Yeah. And they kind of noticed that he wasn't around. And then I think he still, because, you know, he was on probation for 10 years. I think the probation officer would stop in. So, you know, he wasn't around. Um, you know, everybody was kind of like, okay, where did he go? They sent law enforcement over to his house. They did break in as part of a welfare check. And they said the home was fine. Um, they said it looked like someone just walked out and left everything behind. So they knew at that point, you know, it wasn't like he had packed up and left town. He's yeah, probably yeah. just doing Randall and out on the trail, hanging out. Because he would go hiking, as I said, for days on end. He was always on the trail, that sort of thing. So law enforcement just kind of assumed that maybe he'd gone up on the mountain, he'd broken a leg, maybe had a heart attack. Something like that. Right. So they were not about to go look for him. They instead posted a few missing persons posters around, you know, and kind of around the trail and that sort of thing, hoping that some hikers might bump into him and come into town and say, oh, we saw him, you know. It sounds like they could really care less if, uh, oh, if he was around or not. Randall was missing for about eight or nine days before he finally turned up. And he was discovered by two fishermen, Scott Johnston of Bluefield, Virginia, and Sean Farmer of Tazewell, Virginia, were camping at an area known as Walnut Flats. It's in the dismal area of Jefferson National Forest. And the two were trout fishing. I guess, you know, they were were kind of accustomed to maybe making kind of like an annual sort of trip to do a big, you know, big trout fishing kind of thing. Oh, it was there Brobat Mountain? Well, I don't know about okay. that, but, uh, you like, know. I can't quit It you. was like the buddies, you know, fishing. I can't quit fishing, fishing you, Jim. So they're just hanging out. I'm ignoring you. Um, at their campsite when an emaciated Smith showed up out of nowhere. So he's looking pretty haggard, you know, skinny, thin, obviously hasn't eaten. That would weird me out. 
Yeah. If I'm out here with my buddy or my friend or whoever, and it's just us for a long, you know, and you, you might see a hiker or somebody else, but to see this dude looking all crazy and looking like Gollum crawling up a riverbank or something, <laughs> I'm like, nah, yeah, dude. Well, he was toting a fishing pole with him, and he had a dog. The You know, two guys kind of strike up conversation with him, trying to be friendly. He told them he was an engineering student at Virginia Tech, and they didn't believe this, but they took pity on him anyway and offered him a meal. So it was after the men had, you know, served him up dinner, were being really super kind to him, trying to be, you know, a pleasant whatever. Yeah, they probably offered him a beer, a cold beer maybe, a little friend, you know, talking. So he decides to return the favor by attempting to kill both of them with a twenty two caliber revolver. Randall, that's not how we make friends. <laughs> right? Well, fortunately, these two men were able to escape, but they did receive serious gunshot wounds. So they were in this remote section, um, as I mentioned, Walnut Flats, but this section in particular is called No Business. And, and it's just rough. Yeah. Super. It's when you're in the middle of nowhere and you go further. And you ain't got no business being there. And you're in the middle of no nowhere. Yeah. These guys thought that they would probably bleed out before they even made it out of the woods. Yeah, because apparently it's like so many miles on like rutted, narrow trail yes. roads before you even get to regular roads. Well, Smith had stolen Johnston's Ford Ranger, so the the guys definitely had to hike out of this area. Shot, cars stolen, truck stolen. But Smith is going to eventually overturn this truck when he's fleeing from Virginia State Troopers. And he was arrested, but transported to the hospital for medical treatment after the crash. Wow. Got a, got a doctor him up, right? Yeah, so we can fuck him up. Well, two days after he was admitted to the hospital, he died of a blood clot. Ah. Yeah. Damn. So didn't even go to uh, trial over this. So here's a guy who... Killed this other couple. Murders two hikers. Murders them, befriends them, spends days doing it. I mean, that's just sick. That's evil. Right. That's way beyond I jump out, you know, all these circumstances that can happen where you kill someone, whatever. That is like a different kind of when you manipulate and just lay in wait and all that. It's just, uh, it's very evil, I think. Well, and this almost sounds to me like he'd been out in the woods like nine days and finds these two guys. It almost sounds like he'd been out on the trail. And hadn't found anybody, like, he'd been, like, trying to find somebody, like, right. another victim. So he's out, he's out basically hunting. Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's what it seems like. Yeah, and so, and they wanted to give him this light sentence, second-degree murder. They almost let him out five years in, and he just, it sounds like he probably doesn't serve 15 years. We, we You know, I doubt that. And he gets back home and goes and does it again. Attacks two more innocent people, and... Well... Thankfully, they did live. Right. But, you know, he was trying to take them out. Well, yeah, they were shot multiple times apiece, if I, if I'm, you know, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Well, some theories have emerged about Smith's reasoning for the killings and the attempted murders. Um, some people believe that Smith fancied himself like keeper of the mountain and that killing hikers was like doing a good deed because he viewed them as interlopers and thought they damaged the landscape. Ah, so he's like an eco-terrorist. I mean, in some weird way, yeah. He's just crazy as hell. Yeah. That's what he thinks he is. But, so he's like he's like Gandalf. Yeah. You shall not pass. Yes. 
Okay. <laughs> but he's just fucking crazy. Or he's, he's like, trail dude. I need the password. And, um, yeah, so this weird, emaciated-looking white dude jumps out from behind the tree. And he's like, I need the password, the trail password. <laughs> but he's just crazy as fuck. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But, so. no, he's sick. And um, it just seems like uh, they didn't protect the community or anything. And I know when someone does pay for their crime, you know, you do usually give them a second chance and all that. But it it just sounds like he enjoyed doing that. Well, a 15-year sentence seems like nothing when talking about two lives taken. Right. And the fact that you'll likely get out before that. So you're under 10 probably. Well, then I think you, you know, you have to evaluate. It's a case per case kind of thing. But I think it's one thing if a wife kills her husband and it's like a crime of passion. Like right. She catches him in bed with someone else and shoots him. And, you know, because that's like, okay, she's probably not going to do it again. Like right. she's probably going to go back that to society and like special set of circumstances right. one time in that person's life that drove them to do that. But, but you know, somebody who just randomly prays, prays on a couple and just murders them in cold blood. And had all that evidence. Then. So I don't, why do you not put them away for well, life? It just seems to me that that is somebody who is a potential reoffender. Right. Like the recidivism rate's probably going to like jump. It. Yeah. Not what if, just when. Yeah. Right. And so that community should spend the money because it does boil down the cost sometimes. And they had a good case there, the bloody fingerprint, the bloody clothes. I mean, what, why would you even offer that plea in that in that circumstance? It is your duty to go for, you know, the worst and get the biggest sentence and get this guy away from everybody else. Those other two people wouldn't have been attacked like that. And I'm sure traumatized for the rest of their life. Oh, yeah. That has to be really scary. So, but, you know, yeah, it is what it is. But it just seems like I don't understand why, how that worked out that way. And Well, we're going to go on. So that was our first case. Yeah. Um, Appalachian Trail, double homicide. Randall was an asshole. First double homicide on the trail. So now we're going to skip forward a few years. But we've got a second case to talk about. Are you excited? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I know a little bit more about that other case. I don't know much at all about this one. Yeah, this is just so sad. This young couple, Molly LaRue and Jeff Hood, they were just vivacious young people. Jeff was a 26-year-old. He was from Tennessee. He met Molly in Salina, Kansas at a church project called Passport for Adventure. It was a group that like took at-risk teens into the backcountry for like wilderness therapy. Oh, yeah. Sounds like an 80s movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that a lot of the wilderness therapy programs, there's there's more of them now. So back when this story takes place is in the early 90s, it's not so common right. to do this kind of thing. Well, Jeff was this avid rock climber, um, really avid outdoorsman. He had lived in New Mexico, Colorado. He was like a guy who was just always kind of like up for the next adventure, working seasonal jobs, kind of moving from place to place, like working in the outdoor recreation field. So he's like a top A personality, outgoing, blah, blah, blah. Seems to be. Yeah. Hard worker, probably. Well, Molly was just a year younger than him, so she's 25, and she grew up in Ohio. She was an artist, and she spent time working with Outward Bound in Arizona. And 
from the research, I found that not only was she like just an artist, but a really talented artist. When she was in high school, she had actually won an art contest to have one of her original art pieces displayed on a postage stamp. Wow. That's a big deal. Yeah. Wow. But by all accounts, she just was like a really sweet, fun-loving girl. Everybody said she was really happy, really optimistic, always smiling, just one of those really like cheerful people. And she had worked with this Outward Bound Arizona program, um, and that's how you know she came to this Passport for Adventure. And if you're not familiar with Outward Bound, it's another program that takes different groups of people. Um, you can pay to go on these trips. They take veterans, they do kind of therapeutic trips, but basically uh, they take you on like an outdoor adventure for like anywhere from five to nine days. Oh, wow. And you do a variety of things, uh, sea kayaking, uh, mountaineering, you cross backpacking. suspension bridge. I actually went on an outward bound trip to the Florida Everglades and we canoed for six days and it was a veterans trip. So in some ways, it was like a, kind of a therapeutic thing, you know, because it was veterans and some active duty military as well. Um, but it was just really fun, really enjoyable, um, because I will admit I did a semester of like outdoor leadership, which was basically to work in that outdoor field. Oh, I haven't, I haven't noticed that. Yeah. Yeah, you're a leader. <laughs> <laughs> well, I took uh, courses for about a semester, and I'll be honest, the Outward Bound trip let me soon realize that this was probably not a job for me. Right. I enjoy being in the outdoors and doing these fun things as a uh, hobby. Right. But to actually spend like every day weeks upon end <clears throat> out kayaking, canoeing, rafting, camping, dealing with people. Yeah. Yeah. I like a, a, a soft bed and a hot shower. I like a good hot meal. I like the convenience of being able to pull through a drive through and grab a cheeseburger if I have a craving for one. Right. So, you know, being out on the trail and eating like, you know, a box you of can, rice. What you can carry. Is not my idea of a good time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, the couple bonded over their love of the outdoors you know, became quick friends, and eventually they fall in love. They sound like, just as describing you having described both of them, they were probably like the bubbly, super in love, you know, couple. Everybody's like, oh, my God, these two, because, you know, they're both, you know, social, out, you know, boisterous, it seems, you know, and happy. Same interest. Same interest, and they found each other. Yeah. yeah, So so I bet they're that couple. They fall in love, and then they get engaged. And they're super happy. And it seemed like a pretty quick engagement. But the two wanted to travel and see the world together before settling down. They had planned, you know, hey, this is around the time we think we might want to get married, but before we commit, have this wedding, do the thing, um, we want to have a once-in-a-lifetime adventure. Sounds great, right? Yeah, bucket list time. Yeah, well, actually, folks said that this was definitely on Molly's bucket list, that she had this realization that it was one of her greatest life aspirations to complete this trail, to do the entire 2,200-mile Appalachian Trail. She wow. wanted to do it. That's and a long of course, way. Jeff was just completely on board. I mean, he's a cool dude. He likes being outside. He's like, heck yeah, let's make this happen. So she basically cashed in all of her savings 
to fund this trip. So she's going all in. Yeah. Lots of So this was like in early 1990. They're starting to make these plans. And the couple knew that their jobs were going to be ending in the spring of 1990. So they just seized this opportunity to make their dream a reality. And like a lot of hikers, the couple had nicknames within the trail community. So she went by the nickname Nalgene, and he had the nickname Clevis. What would be your trail nickname? I don't know. Grumpy Pants? Shotgun Sally. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And mom would be Big D. I was thinking like Taco Slut. Tacos, I can be taco slut. Yeah. I'm like, mm. I think your troll name would be Bud Light. Bud Light? Can <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I be a different beer? No. A little bit better? No, beer? you have, no, to, you I have, have to, to be Bud. Okay, you I'm to, Bud. You have to be Bud Light. Okay, I'm Bud Light. Well, they plan to give themselves uh, six months to finish the through hike, which is quite a bit of time, but they were not in any kind of hurry. I mean, they knew, like, you know, once we finish this, we're going to get married, we're going right. to jobs, we're going to settle down. The rat race. Yeah. So they were... But they were like, hey, let's take a few months, you know, let's enjoy this trip. I mean, a lot of people will do the trail in like three or four months, you know. It sounds like they were it. taking their time. Yeah, they were. No hurry. They definitely wanted to be able to just enjoy the trail. And so here's a little, I guess, statistical, I'll get that out, statistical information uh, about the trail. As I mentioned, Springer Mountain, Georgia is where the trail begins, and it ends in Maine. Only about one in every ten hiker starts the trail in Maine. Only they, Most of them start in Georgia and go up? They do. Okay. For whatever reason, I'm thinking maybe weather. Maybe. Maybe terrain. Maybe tradition. I don't know. But this couple decided that they were going to begin in early summer, so they went ahead and took their chances with starting in Maine guess they figured, yeah, if we start there and make our way south, we'll avoid the colder... Right, as it starts going into winter crappy, and stuff. Crappy, yeah. you know, weather. In 2016, um, this is just to kind of give you a little estimate of um, how many people hike the trail. In 2016, about 3,377 people attempted a through hike, meaning they were going to do the entire trail in one shebang. Okay. But only about 30% of that number actually complete the trail. Wow. So only 370 or so. Right. Out of 3,700. So, and that's in like 2016 numbers. So you've got to consider in 1990, far less people were like probably interested in hiking the trail and doing the trail thing. So it's probably down to a lot less, maybe under 1,000. Yeah, probably. Who knows? We could look on that out, but. So yeah. definitely, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking busy. like probably not, yeah, more sparse, uh, bumping into people, that kind of thing. And in 1990, there had only been one other double homicide case on the trail. At that point, there had only been a few murders on the trail. So it was not like there was a lot of crime happening. So these people felt pretty safe making this journey. Um, you know, only a couple of accidental deaths. So, you know, they're not thinking, and they're young, so they're not thinking about the what-ifs. Right. And Molly and Jeff, like a lot of hikers, uh, kept journals of the trip. The first few months seemed pretty great. Um, they had made friends on the trail. They had taken their time. They would write about, you know, if they found a spot where they were camping or there was a waterfall or something they liked, they might even stay an extra day or two there. 
just hanging out. Now, there were some moments uh, along the way where they would find themselves writing like, why am I doing this? Right. Hundreds of miles this in. This sucks. Yeah. Like, uh. I can just go home. I'm going to yeah, You know, this town. is crazy. Like, why am I, you know, I'm miserable. I can't sleep. That kind of thing. But for the most part, they, you know, were having a great time. Not really complaining a whole lot. It seemed like the biggest setbacks were expected things like, you know, sore feet, bug bites, maybe some rashes. Yeah. A couple sleepless nights. But, I mean, you got to consider you're giving up all those creature comforts to go live on a trail, live out of a backpack for six months. You're going to complain a little bit. Right. It's That's quite complain. different than normal everyday life. Yeah. Every day is not going to be a bed of roses when you're out there. No. So, by September, they were 700 miles in, and they decided to get off the trail. This would have been around September the 12th, and stay at an inn in Duncannon, Pennsylvania. They go into town. They spend the night in a hotel. They have a nice sleep. Get a hot shower. I bet that hot feels meal. amazing. I bet you appreciate it. Like yeah. everybody's business. Hiking all those hundreds of miles. They, uh, you know, resupply, get everything that they need, and the next day they set out, and it took about an hour to get to Thelma Marks, which is a shelter on the trail, and it's on a place called Cove Mountain. Well, there were some fellow hikers, as I mentioned, they had made friends. There were some fellow hikers, Biff Bowen and his wife, Cindy, and they knew that Molly and Jeff were going to be in Duncannon and Santa's Hotel and that they were going to leave and go back to Thelma Marks. Biff and his wife were like about a day behind. So they went into town, resupplied, and their plan was to meet up at Thelma Marks with their friends. The morning after, so this would have been like around September 14th, because you got to consider the 12th, they spent the night in the hotel, they get up the 13th, they go to the Thelma Marks, they right. get up. So this would have been like the morning of the 14th. Who, who the hell names your kid Biff? I don't know. I wonder what Biff is short for. I don't know, but... Bifferino? The age I am, and I don't know if it's true for you. When you hear the name Biff, you think of Biff the Tannen. villain in uh, the Back to the Future movie. When that, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. But, yeah. So, Biff and his wife show up at the shelter that morning thinking they're going to find their buddies making breakfast, you know, maybe packing up their gear. Right. You know, morning ritual, maybe having a cup of coffee, that kind of thing. Well, when they get to the shelter, they immediately know something was just horribly wrong. Like, everything just seemed really fucked up. And, uh, that's not good. I bet that's instantly scary, scary for them. Yeah. It was so scary, in fact, that when Biff saw the couple's gear just in disarray all over the ground, supplies, food, all of their worldly possessions, just torn all to pieces, thrown everywhere. He was like, this is not good. He told Cindy, you stay here. Like, I don't even want you to go inside the shelter. Yeah, because like you said, uh, you've been living out of these backpacks. Everything you have is essential. Your stuff, your little bit of stuff, and all this big empty trail you're walking. So, yeah, you're not going to just leave that all strewn around. Yeah. You're not going to tear your backpack all apart and throw all your essential stuff around like that. So Biff tells Cindy, you stay here. He goes inside, and once he's inside the shelter, he sees Jeff and Molly on the floor, blood everywhere, and the couple appears to be bound. Molly's hands are tied behind her back. She's got blood, you know, all over her head, her upper body. Same with Jeff. So, well, 
terrible scene. What'd you say if you found something like that? I don't know. I think I'd have reflexed. I'd be like, what the fuck? Yeah. And then I'd be scared. Yeah. I don't know. But I'd also be looking at it like. It's hard to say because I, sometimes I feel like I would freak out, but then other times I find myself eerily calm and like really screwed up situations. Right. So I'm not sure. You might be that one that you don't want to go in there. Yeah. Yes. So immediately, of course, if rushes outside, I'm sure he's freaking out. So he's like, we got to get out of here. He and Cindy make the hike back into town, which takes somewhere between maybe like 45 minutes to an hour Wow! to alert authorities about what has happened. So when investigators show up, they determine that Jeff was shot with a 22 caliber in the back of the head and in the stomach three times. A 22 caliber is the same weapon that Randall Smith used. Yeah, that's weird. I know, right? Well, Molly had been raped, then stabbed repeatedly in the back, neck, and throat area. And I think they said something like 12 times that she'd been stabbed. Isn't that similar to what Randall Smith did? Very similar. He shot him and stabbed her? Yeah, it's eerily similar. Wow. Yeah, very, very similar. So, of course, news quickly spreads through the Appalachian Trail community, and people were pretty vigilant in helping to solve this case. Not only the hikers along the trail, but, you know, folks who live in the area. Yeah, it's, it's just a, bad news. It's they don't all want this person. Small towns through there, small knit, you know, tight knit communities. And uh, that's so far outside of the normal what happens even around their period, let alone on the trail. So, yeah, it would be, I'm sure that I could see the community like we're going to, who's seen anything, which is likely in such a small community, somebody's seen something. Well, yeah, and a lot of residents who live along the trail are so um, kind to hikers. Well, that's what they'll you said they're called, what? A lot of people call them trail angels. Right. They'll bring, like, food out to the shelters. Hot meal. Supplies, Band-Aids, warm socks, dry Maybe socks. Maybe even a hot you know, shower. Yeah, they'll, tuck, they'll meet you at certain places and take you for a ride into town. Um, take you home, let you take a shower. I mean, you know, these people are just really nice and they're very supportive of the hikers. Just a really nice, you know, kind of close-knit little community. Yeah, because an economy comes along with those hikers. Definitely. You know, all the small towns near the trail, just like we live close to one, is definitely take advantage of that. We'll have, you know, the higher dollar. You also know those stores typically is the high dollar stuff. So these people, I think that take six months off and walk the trail are not typically poor people and they they have money to spend you know what i mean yeah i mean i know some people who do the trail that definitely don't have a lot of money but they work seasonal like outdoor types of jobs they usually don't have a house they don't have mortgage they're literally about that life a lot of them don't even have a vehicle right they're like hey i got a bike and a plane ticket to go wherever and they work six months, save their money, and then do six months on the trail, you know? So, right. So I'm sure that, yeah, I wasn't, didn't mean to grossly generalize. But I see where but, you're going with this. Yeah, typically speaking. Well, with all these folks pitching in to spread the word, everybody's concerned, it's hit the news, you know, this is a big deal. It only took nine days to make an arrest, and they found the person in Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Which, you know, this happened in Pennsylvania. He's already down in West Virginia. And um, I've been to Harper's Ferry. Beautiful place. Really? Absolutely gorgeous. You've got 
beautiful kind of mountain area. Is that that one tied to that Civil War story? Yeah, about? you got the river. I mean, it's just a really beautiful wow. spot. Okay. And, and it's like right along the border of Maryland. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I'd like to go see that. Really just such a pretty area. Well, the murder at this point had remained, uh, you know, kind of a mystery. But what police were kind of able to piece together was that this couple had encountered a man named Paul David Cruz at some point in the, you know, few hours that they were at Thelma Mark's shelter. So to give you a little background on Cruz, because this guy, I'm just going to say it, he's fucked up. Okay. Yeah. Little did they know. Now, this was in 1990 when Jeff and Molly are killed. Cruz was on the lam for the 1986 murder of a Florida woman. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so he's an asshole. So July 3rd, 1986, a woman named Clemmy Jewel Arnold, she was a 56-year-old woman, was kind enough to offer Paul Cruz a ride home from a bar in Bartow, Florida. And the next day, she turned up dead, naked, nearly decapitated. Wow. Yeah. At an old, like, abandoned railroad kind of... Yard or something. Yeah. Well, apparently, Cruz had been kind of squatting there. And so immediately after she's killed, Paul Cruz shows up in Polkville, North Carolina, at his brother's house in the bloodstained Oldsmobile belonging to Clemmy Arnold. Wow. The victim. What would you say if your brother showed up like that? Because I would just be like, hey, bro, it's good to see you, but why is the car covered in blood? I'd be like, who the fuck are you supposed to be? Yeah, I'd be like, and why did you come here? Yeah. Yeah, you need to get in that blood-soaked car and take that shit on down the road. The words of Dylan, you need to get on somewhere with that. You need to get on somewhere with that. Exactly. His brother, unlike us, was just like, sure, let me help you out here. Yeah. So he takes Paul, drops him off in the country. Let's get that blood-soaked shirt off of you, bro. Police eventually catch up with the brother, and they find the car, they find bloody clothes, they find Cruz's knife. But they don't find Cruz, because at that point, he's hit the road, he's long gone. Why do these people keep all this stuff? That would be instinctual. Like, I know. In this why day, is the brother hanging on to it? When, yeah, I know. In this day and age, I know we got like we've heard hear about true crime and can ingest it and just hear about so much more than even if you try to read all these books. But um, instinctually, before anyone that I knew about anything as far as crime as far as crimes go, I would be like, I need to get rid of these bloody clothes and this bloody murder weapon. I should not keep these things. Cruz, wanted for murder, takes off on the trail. Well, I'm going to give you a little background on him, even further back, because the guy did have kind of a fucked up life. He was abandoned by his father, Edward Horn, who had seven children, by the way, um, when he was a small child. Like, his dad just up and leaves, leaves the kids. And I guess mom was already long gone, so... seven? Seven kids. Wow. So the kids are, of course, sent to children's homes, foster care. But eventually, Paul gets adopted when he's eight years old by a family in Burlington, North Carolina. And by all accounts, his adoptive family, picture of normal. Mom, her name was Susan Cruz. She was a nurse, very active in their local church, pillars of the community, 
loving, giving, just really nice people. So just the quintessential nice. I mean, it sounds like Paul really couldn't have been adopted by like a better family. A wonderful family. Who really wanted to just help him out, do right by him. Yeah, can help him succeed in life. Yeah. Not like the providers, hard workers. But he wasn't having it. I mean, by age 12, he was running away, like frequently running away. He had gotten in trouble for like taking knives to school, threatening other kids, doing little punk-ass delinquent types of shit. His mother, Susan, would later come out and say that it was during that time he was diagnosed as a manic depressive. Yeah. And he was just a troubled kid. Right. So by 1972, he was just, you know, kind of not really going anywhere. Finished school, joined the Marine Corps. Ah. They're looking for a few good men. Well, you know, sometimes it gives plenty of people some direction in life and a a boost. I overall feel like it was probably one of the best choices I ever made. Right. It really kind of helped me get myself together. Yeah. Instead of just floating around like a... No, no, no. Right, like these crust punks riding the, <laughs> yeah. riding the trains. Like, hey, I got some learning, and now what do I do? You know what I mean? Right. Well, the Marine Corps, you know, he's in there for about a year. I guess things are going okay for him. He meets a lady, gets married, becomes a dad. Okay. Okay, hey. Paul, way to go. Yeah. Settled down. Seems like things are, are doing okay for him. Doing the right well. thing. But by 1974... He had gone AWOL, Uh he had attempted suicide a couple of times, and was discharged. Ah, Paul, I saw this coming. And his wife divorced him, and that's when he kind of just became a drifter. And the wife, too, all at the same time? Yeah. Okay, so this probably goes back to him being a troubled person. Yep. And, yeah. So, as you mentioned, Crust Punk, so that's kind of him. He's just a drifter. He's just floating around, no direction, taking odd jobs. So what you're saying... Transient. As he is a cowboy. Without a, a steel horse. In a sti- on a steel horse. He doesn't have a steel horse, but... Okay. He eventually moves to South Indiana by 1977 and was, again, working odd jobs, no real steady kind of work, um, just picking up whatever he could to make ends meet. And he managed to get married again. Oh, okay. All right, Paul. Getting them back together. So one morning, do this. he crawls into bed with his second wife and holds a bayonet to her throat. Oh, Paul. No, no, Paul. That's not how you keep a wife. This ends in divorce. Oh. Not surprised, right? Paul. Yeah. Okay, okay. So you fucking up again, Paul. At some point after this, you know, divorce happens... He does make his way back to North Carolina, where he gets up with his um, biological brother, whose name was David Rayhorn, and moves in with him kind of briefly. You know, he's there for less than a few months. Um, They're partying, they're drinking, they're doing drugs, Yeah, you know, whatever. Things are, uh, I guess, going well, if that's what you're into. Until Donald Ray shoots his girlfriend when they have an argument and partially paralyzes her. What is wrong with these people? Brothers of a feather, it seems. Oh, my God. So, of course, after that happens, that's when Paul makes his way to Florida. By the 1986 murder, living in Florida, working odd jobs again, like picking oranges. 
Okay. You know, living kind of in squats, like. Okay, so Paul's, he's getting by. Yeah. He's getting by. So at this point, he's gotten to where he's not even like living in a house, not renting a place. He's basically just wherever he can find shelter, living out in this abandoned railroad depot kind of place. Basically, Paul don't give a fuck. Okay. So that's when he decides, you know, he's going to kill this first victim, Clemmy Jewel Arnold. But later, investigators are going to come out and say that they suspect that this is actually not his first radio. They think he's probably killed before. Really? Yeah. Wow. He takes off on the trail, kills Clemmy, goes to North Carolina. His brother drops him off out in the country, and he takes off on the trail. He's posing for these several years as a fellow hiker, but, you know, people who would see him out on the trail were like, mm, he is not a right. hiker. He had very little gear. He didn't seem to know anything about backpacking, through hiking. He yeah, that's completely wrong. That's real hiking. doesn't there. have supplies. So pretty much everybody that met him was like, you know, who is this dude? This dude's got a t-shirt and jeans on and just tell my hair goes. Yeah, and, you know, plus his behavior was just kind of weird. He's just one of those guys. Probably a weird-ass dude. We're just like, this guy's weird, and he doesn't even have a tent, and he doesn't have a sleeping bag, and, like, what the hell? Let's just play along and get him out of here is probably what people would think. Yeah. Okay, weirdo, <laughs> no tent guy. At some point, he meets up with Molly and Jeff on the trail. The details of this meeting, kind of sketchy. So this is after he's took off on the trail again. Yeah. So the murder happened with the Florida woman in 1986. He's off on the trail. He bumps into Jeff and Molly. It's 1990. Uh, so this is three and a half, four years later that he's been living out on the trail. Wow. Evading arrest. Kind of hobo cross life. Yeah. Right. On the fringe of society. Just sleeping where he can. I guess getting food where he can. Yeah. But. Cruz said that the entire time that he was out on the trail, he basically was just drinking the shit out of Jim Beam and using cocaine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Where is he getting that from? And he claims that the night he encountered Molly and Jeff, he was drunk, he was high on cocaine. Ah, that's why I murdered them. Yeah, and he didn't offer up any real motive for the killing. Yeah. He never had a reason why he did it. When I drink, I don't usually want to murder people, even if I got what's called drunk. But when he was arrested, uh, which was in West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, he was wearing Jeff's hiking boots and carrying Jeff's backpack. Ah, to look more like a hiker, probably. Well, some people think that maybe it was like a murder of opportunity. He saw this couple. He was like, hey, I need some gear. I'm going to take them out. He had raped Molly, so maybe he's thinking, oh, I'm going to kill this guy and steal his shit and rape his girlfriend and kill her. I'm just going to rob these people, take what I can. What the fuck is wrong with people? I don't know. Really? Well, I mean, it's just the stuff, these stories, and the stuff I listen to and the stuff we talk about. It's just the, the things humans will do to other humans. I mean, there's just no end to it. We're the real monsters. We really are. At this, I should mention, Cruz is 38 years old. Um, he's, you know, arrested, goes to trial. He is sentenced to death. Okay. And there was a psychiatrist who testified at the trial that Cruz had a personality disorder. Oh, yeah. And they were trying to say, oh, you know, he wasn't really in his right mind and blah, blah, blah. Well, he did appeal the death sentence 
and was given life in prison in 2006. That's still better than what they gave old Randall. Yeah. But, uh, you know, here we go. Two more, you know, innocent people murdered just trying to hide the damn trail. He just wanted their shit. It doesn't matter why. It's horrible. It shouldn't have happened, but... But the parallels with these two cases is just uncanny. It's like two young couples, two young couples who work in fields that are, um, you know, working with troubled social work, things like illness, uh, you know, people who seem like they're really trying to do good in the world, give back, they're nature lovers, they're young couples in love. Yeah. And then you've got both cases. Um, the males are shot. The females are brutally stabbed. And likely both raped. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, the police did believe that Laura Ramsey had been sexually assaulted. Right. But at that time, just with, uh, you know, I guess science and whatnot, they, I guess, couldn't really tell. Because at that point, you know, her body had started to decompose and that kind of thing. But... That, but just, it's just crazy because it's like these almost could be the same person yeah, that committed both crimes. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, um, it's scary how similar it is, you know? Yeah, I think so. So I wasn't sure about both time frames, but uh, it makes you wonder. Well, I guess Cobb came later, right? A little later? or Cruz? Cruz came later. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Randall came Randall Smith came first. Yeah, he first he killed the couple in nineteen eighty one and then it was um in two thousand eight when he shot the two fishermen. Right. And then this happened in nineteen ninety. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And well, then, that's just really and weird. Then the, the first victim in the cruise case was nineteen eighty six that they know of. But like I said, investigators think that he had done that before. I guess maybe that just comes, uh, similar M.O.s comes with if you want to murder a guy and sexually assault and rape his woman that you, you know, then you stab. I mean, I don't get it. I yeah. don't know how you could do any of that, let alone that in a row. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like murder, violence, and rape, and more murder. I mean, it's just... And I think from the information I was able to get, it seems that there were only about 11 or so murders, homicides on the trail. Really? Yeah. I mean, this is not a common thing. I mean, yes, there are, you know, bad people out there. There are crimes that happen on the Appalachian Trail, but um, it's not as significant as we might think. So we've talked before about maybe talking about more about how many people go missing in national parks. Yeah, no, now, that's a lot of people. A lot of it? stuff about that, yeah. But then that's not, that's like a different outside. But yeah, I'm surprised. Uh, well, it's like you said in the first story, that typically doesn't happen on the trail. It's usually just everybody's cool and crunchy grooves and, you know, doing this lifetime. Yeah, there are plenty of people trips. who do solo hikes. Right. Um, plenty of women who do solo hikes. Right, and I'm sure it's very um, almost tantric or like, you know, what I, I don't know the word I'm looking, next level spiritual. Like nirvana. Yeah, yes, like man, yeah, euphoria. namaste, man. Like euphoria. Is that right, namaste? <laughs> yeah. 
Namaste. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yeah, I'll get my man, little man bun going here and I can really start out like I do yoga. I'll do fat guy yoga. Okay. They've done hot yoga, but nobody's done fat yoga. Oh, honey, if you do fat yoga, I'm sure it'll be hot. It will be hot and sweaty very quickly. That's why we do it in a meat freezer. Because you will be sweating. That's in right, a meat dude. freezer. Well, that is the story of Molly LaRue, Jeff Hood, and uh, the other couple, um, Robert Montford and Laura Ramsey. Uh, yes. That's some great story. Well, great in a true crime sense. Obviously horrible for the big, you know, victims and their families. But um, that just goes to show you that we've talked about it before, that um, if you do run into trouble out there on the trail or deep in the mountains, um, you're in serious trouble. You are. Because it's seriously like a Mad Max situation. If you cannot protect yourself and someone who, you know, has the only gun or gets power over you, you're, you're done. Yeah. And you're in trouble. In many of these situations, you're so far out that... that Sometimes like these, the two fishermen in Virginia, I mean, they were fighting for their lives, literally, right. as they're, they're dragging so far themselves from the hospital. out of the woods right. through rugged terrain. So far from fire departments or even a house with someone living in it or telephone line, you're just in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And that's so scary. So, I mean, I would just have to go hard if I go out there, okay? So I'm going to... I'm going to keep a little, you know, a little something, something. I think that's why this 22 keeps popping up. It's small, easily concealed. Yeah. You know, you can't really walk around with a hand cannon. Because, but I do think they changed, adjusted the laws, at least here in North Carolina, that you're maybe because of these events like this. And there was a couple, you know, some people around here that's been killed around or, you know, out in the woods. So, uh, yeah, yeah, people I should mean, be able to protect themselves. I have to say that when I've gone out, on the trail and I've gone, you know, backpacking. I would have a little camping. something, something. I take a big ass knife with me. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, something. Damn, like a crocodile Gundy. No, like for real. Big old, you know, and keep it on your side that I'm like, right. And I'm sleeping with it and I'm ready. Like, right. I'm very vigilant. Yeah. I would be that, like that. If you're coming in here to get this, I'm going to leave a mark on you. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try my damnedest to fuck you up. <laughs> but anyway, so everybody, when you're on the trails, keep your eyes open, be safe. Because bad things do happen out in those beautiful places. Well, again, we want to thank you for listening to Mountain Murders. This is the Appalachian Trail Murders. And we'll be back with a brand new Patreon bonus episode. So if you haven't become a patron, support Mountain Murders by joining up. Um, at our lowest level, it's a couple of bucks. You're billed once a month. And you're going to get all sorts of extra bonus content. Cool stuff, photos, videos. Uh, yes, yeah, so we're talking about all kinds of things and little extras to do and uh, get started and uh, just more and more.